Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey, everybody. It's Nikki Nellis. We are live on Industry Night at the Gorgeous Line Hotel. I want to thank you all for joining me today. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I am local food media for the DC market. You can follow me at the list, areyouonit.com. We write about every food and wine event going on in the DC metro area. Of course, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Nikki Nellis, N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. You may have also heard me on WTOP radio as well as WFED radio, where I do my other show, Foodie and the Beast. I do that with my husband. We've been on air for just 11 years now. We're the only food and wine radio Radio variety show in the DC area. And I'm really, really excited about, well, I'm always excited about what I'm going to talk about because I have so much to say. But uh, today I'm very excited. I was able, with a lot of help, to pull together a studio full of really interesting people. Um, earlier this summer, I got invited on a trip out to, well, it started in Pittsburgh, but it was called the Whiskey Rebellion Trail. Now, I didn't know my history as well as I should have, even though I did see like Hamilton three times. But um, I learned so much about the history of whiskey in this country and also what's going on with whiskey in this country right now. So if you've been living under a rock, um, the last 15 years has been a total change, especially on the East Coast, in the distilling business. Um, In the D.C. market 15 years ago, there was not a distiller to be found. Same thing in the Pittsburgh area, Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia. All these areas were lacking in these craft artisan producers. And there's lots lots of reasons for it, which we will get into later on the show. But I do want to tell you who's here today uh, in studio, except for some reason, I don't have somebody's name in my document. I don't know if your name. Uh, Brian Sheridan. Well, thank you very much. Uh, from Sagamore, uh, Spirit in Baltimore, Maryland. But I want to start with, um, first, I have Meredith Meyer Grelly, who is in studio. Did I say your last name correctly? You did. It rhymes with smelly. Smelly Grelly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> so Meredith, I met first and foremost, and she is the one, she is the force of nature behind uh, the Whiskey Rebellion Trail, but even more so, she is behind Wiggle Spirits, which is one of the innovators of distilleries in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, Also in studio, I have Ellen Ho, who is with Liberty uh, Pole Distillery, who is a wealth of knowledge all on her own, Uh, and Kara Webster of 1-8 Distilling. And 1-8, for those of you in the D.C. area, is its own force in the distilling industry, especially locally. So I want to start with Meredith because you're the one who, first of all, brought all these people together today. But you started distilling 10 years ago at a time when it just was not a thing. Yeah, we, you know, 
we started about the same time you were starting Foodie and the Beast, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and we looked at this industry that we loved, this spirits, American spirits industry. And as we dug a little bit into it, we realized that although we loved it, we had all collectively as Americans been living through the most boring whiskey landscape in the country's history for decades. We were living in this very consolidated whiskey world, whereas historically America had thousands, even tens of thousands of distilleries across the country. When we were starting the distillery, um, there were really just a handful of major American distilleries. And we, we looked at rye, which is a whiskey that everyone in this room produces and we all love. Um, there were really two large producers of rye whiskey in the country. So coming from Western Pennsylvania, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of that as we go, where there were hundreds of ryes that came out of Western Pennsylvania alone, not to mention the ryes that were coming out of the rest of Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia. We felt like we really had a responsibility right. as whiskey lovers to bring this tradition back. But did you really start because you loved whiskey? I mean, as a business, as a business model, yeah. what was it about it that you're like, yes, we need to do this? My husband and Alex and I loved craft alcohol. Okay. We loved craft alcohol. And craft loved- beer was on the rise at that point. Craft beer was on the rise. We were really stupid. We actually thought that craft beer was saturated at the time. I mean, 10 years later, hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. Now exactly. it's saturated. Totally. But... Um, Alex in particular had always had a real passion for spirits. Our first date was in his dorm room where he made us martinis when everyone else, all of our oh other friends God, were like, sophisticated. Well, so I, thought, I would have been impressed. Right. Well, so at the time, um, you know, our friends were like drinking like forties of oldies. Right. And he's making me like martinis. And I thought that he was gay because at the time, like, there was such not that such, there's anything wrong not with there's it. anything wrong with it right but in the early aughts he was called a metrosexual yes now we are all very sophisticated and we know better than all of this rubbish right. but at the time i had to be convinced that he was hetero because okay. he was he made such mean cocktails so um so yeah so it was a part of our relationship from the start he mm-hmm. loved um making drinks and so he really got me into a world of cocktails too and then spirits and we followed some of the very earliest in the industry blue coat out of philadelphia Mm -hmm. philly distilling we loved their gin and thought what they were doing was really interesting and so we wanted to dive deeper and so when we thought about what kind of spirits we wanted to make we knew a little bit about pennsylvania's whiskey history and the more we learned we knew that that is what we had to bring back well so but doesn't whiskey, of all the spirits, whiskey seems like the one that needs a little more time, mm-hmm. right? So were you concerned about the investment that you were going to have to make before you could put product out? Yeah, totally. From a business perspective, whiskey requires a lot of patience. It's not a smart business to dive into expecting big, quick returns. Turns. Right, no. right, right, right. And we did it the stupidest way possible, which is we decided we're going to make everything from scratch from day one. We're not going to buy bulk spirits, in which case we spent two years selling clear whiskey, which is a very challenging marketing. <laughs> um, uh, so for, yeah. for people who, the uninitiated, yeah. clear whiskey is just because it spends no time in the barrel. Clear whiskey has not spent any time in a barrel. Exactly. So if you're looking at beautiful brown liquid, it's most likely gotten that color from a charred 
barrel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is how you got started. Mm. We'll get into the history segment in just a minute. Kara, I want to head over to you. Let's talk about 1-8. Um, one of the originals for the D.C. distilling industry, again, about how old are you guys? Because it, it all started about, yeah. I know John Uselton at Green Hat sort of got yeah. the ball rolling initially. Yeah, so Green Hat, Green Hat paved the way uh, for D.C. distilling, and we followed behind. Um, we were incorporated in 2013, started distilling in 2014, and opened our doors in 2015. Mm-hmm. So, um, But at this point, we're proud to say we're the largest distillery in, D- in D.C. now by capacity and also square footage. But what were you guys looking to do when you started? What was the hole you saw in the market, and what was the kind of spirit you were looking to provide? Right. So I think I think all of us in this room can agree that uh, you can talk about you know terroir with wine, um, mm-hmm. but it's really fun to talk about it with whiskey and. Um, you know, we saw it with craft beer, but uh, craft spirits are bringing about, you know, this enthusiasm for all of us that have been whiskey drinkers and are really excited about the decisions that we get to make mm-hmm. and also the historic traditions that um, we get to honor. Um, so for our co-founders, it was really about the grains that we source, um, kind of having a historical uh, nod to the region, specifically rye, and then doing it with intention and transparency and putting kind of a modern twist on it, which is really fun for us. But what does that mean? I mean, for the whiskey drinker, what does that mean? So we kind of find our, our spirits buck tradition just a little bit. Um, you know, when somebody comes in and tastes our rye, they're not expecting a two-year-old straight rye whiskey to really surprise them. Mm-hmm. And it's it's definitely the secret staff favorite of the bunch because you bring in all of these bourbon drinkers into the fold and you pour them something that... Um, they are surprised to enjoy. And Mm -hmm. that's really fun, bringing the excitement for rye whiskey back to the region. Okay, and let's go into Sagamore. Because having been there, so I've been to every distillery that's in studio (laughs) today. I'm totally going to brag on that. Um, But Brian, tell us about Sagamore and its start. Because it's massive. Yes, yes, you can definitely say it's massive. I mean, you know, you look at us uh, being in Maryland, being in Baltimore, um, our ownership, uh, they take a lot of pride in establishing, uh, you know, revitalizing Maryland as a whole and, and not just Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at that history where uh, Maryland distilling has really been dormant for a very long time. So for us, you know, we really want to put that flag on the map to, to get Maryland re- recognized again. And so with its beginning, again, it started with the whiskey and the rye? Yeah, so we lead with rye, uh, obviously Maryland uh, being known for its rye. Uh, mm-hmm. That is our primary focus. Um, and having that classic Maryland style of rye that, uh, that we lead with uh, makes us very unique. Well, but most people don't know that Maryland is known for its rye. So is, is there a lot of farmers still planting rye in uh, They are, but not to the demand that a, a distillery would need mm-hmm. to, uh, to really draw a, a substantial amount of grain from. Um, we would love to utilize 100% Maryland grain, um, and we are actually working uh, to get to a point that we're that we're sourcing 100% Maryland grain. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the time being, we are utilizing grain from across the U.S. Uh, the best possible grains that we can utilize in distillation. And when it came to the products that Sagamore wanted to put out, what was the focus? 
So uh, a lot of the research that our team did in establishing, uh, you know, our distillery, uh, we kind of looked back into what made the classic Maryland style of rye unique. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it was a, a challenge in itself to truly find a recipe card that kind of listed everything out. But there were uh, there were some key buzzwords that really kind of stood out to us, and it was uh, the sweetness, uh, the the approachability, uh, the easy drinking factors of it. Um, so our distillation team um, worked with a gentleman by the name of Larry Ebersold, uh, who kind of was worked under contract with us. And Larry is the former master distiller of uh, MGP out in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And along with their collaboration, established uh, the mash bill that we felt really captured the essence of that classic Maryland style of rye. Is, so what is a classic Maryland style so of rye? So a classic mean, Maryland style of rye is going to be a little bit sweeter, uh, and that sweetness, uh, specifically with our rye, stems from an increased corn content in our mash bill. So okay. you're almost getting a touch of that bourbon sweetness in there to really balance out the rye spice as well. Okay. I'm, I'm going to head over to Ellen to talk about Liberty Pole, but then I think we need to pull back a little bit and maybe do a bit of an education on whiskey, rye whiskey, bourbon, scotch, all that. I mean, we're dealing with similar products, but maybe explain to people how it is regional and what each one depends on. So let's talk about Liberty Pole. So Liberty Pole Spirits is the smallest of all the people that are sitting here today. It's an honor to be with all of you. My husband theoretically had a hobby years ago. We are located in this, this hobby in a small town called Washington, Pennsylvania. It's nicknamed Little Washington, so as not to be confused with here. Yeah, but there, you know, there's another Little Washington in Virginia, so it can be confusing. We're the. I mean, I'm just. I mean, I just say. I'm just saying. There is another Little Washington, but let's not. So it's the one in Pennsylvania, not the one in Virginia. Yes. So the history in southwestern Pennsylvania, where Wiggle and I are located is really heavy into the Whiskey Rebellion because it was there that the first American army marched. So they've tried in this town to preserve the history. And one of the gentlemen who was involved in a festival called the Whiskey Rebellion Festival, it was about year four of the festival, asked Jim if he'd ever thought about opening a distillery because they have a festival, but they have no whiskey. So. That just sparked a great idea, something to do in our retirement. Mm -hmm. And as Meredith, everyone has said here, you have no idea how hard it is and how amazing and rewarding it is at the same time. So we started this distillery in an old monument factory. We're family owned and operated. We have brought in local farmers that you guys have struggled with at Sagamore. It's wonderful. Our farmer started with nine acres the first year. He's up to 27 acres of a heritage wow. corn that he grows for us and calls himself a bourbon farmer. So we not only felt the need that, I, I wouldn't say need, but we felt that it was very, as Kara said earlier, it's a responsibility to honor what happened there and how much what happened in that area affected so many lives in the United States as it was becoming a new country. And rye whiskey just happened to be the biggest industry at the time. And so we're trying to, all of four of us sitting here are trying to revitalize that. Well, I think you bring up a really interesting point. So whiskey was everywhere in the 1800s on. Was it prohibition that put a bullet in all of it? I mean, what, 
What happened? What happened to all the distilleries? What happened to everything? Meredith? I'll start, but this is a big topic that I'm sure everyone can right, add to. Which I'm hopeful. Yeah, so if you look at the chart of distilleries across the U.S., there's a beautiful chart that um, exists online that you can look at uh, that shows thousands of distilleries across the U.S., and it is a vast and precipitous decline right at prohibition, and we never recovered as a country. So even now, when it feels like there is this amazing rebirth of craft distilling, we are just scratching the surface That's amazing. of what historically was in America when we were a much smaller country. Well, it feels probably feels bigger now because access is a lot easier, mm-hmm. right? So you had your whiskey maker on the corner in Little Washington. You didn't need one on every corner. In fact, you had a whiskey still in, in most houses. I think the facts are there were 255 stills in Pennsylvania during the Whiskey Rebellion. But after, and they shared them. They passed them around and mm-hmm. shared them. Before Prohibition, Pennsylvania had more rye whiskey aging in barrels than Kentucky has now on bourbon. Pennsylvania was giant. There were cities that were built around the rye whiskey industry in which in the city the Cooper lived, the farmers lived, sure. the Malter lived. And so, and then the farmers. I mean, it was a, a huge business. And wiped out in one day. Cities Amazing. wiped out in one day. Okay, well, on that, let's go back. So let's talk about the different spirit, like rye whiskey versus whiskey versus bourbon. What explains all of it? Can we do sort of a glossary for people who maybe are confused? This is my favorite part of the tour okay. because I'm probably the newest to whiskey in this room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started with the distillery about two and a half years ago, but my favorite tour to give are the little light bulbs that go off for people, and this is my favorite dot to connect. So, mm-hmm. um, As we open up. A lovely little bar whiskey. here called Union Trust posted the best Instagram post, and I reposted it um, on our Instagram. It's a whiskey tree. Okay. And it's, don't overthink it. You know, whiskey is the umbrella term, but then the different, the different types of whiskey, scotch comes from Scotland, Canadian whiskey obviously comes from Canada, Irish whiskey comes from Ireland, and they're all distilled in different ways and created in different ways. And then rye whiskey, of course, was the first chapter of American whiskey, mm-hmm. and bourbon came along right after that. Okay, but what's the difference between rye whiskey and bourbon? So uh, there are three rules that make uh, a rye whiskey a rye whiskey or a bourbon a bourbon, um, our two American spirits. Uh, Number one, they have to be made in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rye whiskey needs to be made in the U.S. Kentucky needs to be made in the U.S. There are no parameters around which states can make these spirits. Okay. Uh, So second parameter is that they need to be aged in new American oak barrels, so you can't put another whiskey, dump this barrel, and put another whiskey inside and call it a rye. It needs to be a new barrel. Uh, And then third, uh, depending on what you're making, if you're making a rye, you need to use at least 51% rye in that mash bill or the recipe that you're using. And then for bourbon, uh, as it's a sweeter spirit, it it consists of at least 51% corn. Got it. And then so all the mixtures in there is how you each come up with what you want as your mixture to be. Well, you bring up, you mentioned uh, Coopers and um, barrels, and barrel aging is so important. 
the char, everything about it. Can we talk a little bit about the history of that and how it affects the products you make or what you do? Ellen, why don't we start with you? Well, barrels are uh, really cool science. You think, boy, I'm done. I distilled the whiskey. Right. But then you learn that where the oak grows matters because of the, the specific oak grows faster, say, for example, in a warmer climate. So the rings on that oak tree will be wider apart. The whiskey will go in and out of that wood quicker, age much faster. If the tree grows in northern the United States, the rings will be tighter together. The whiskey will go in and out of the wood much slower. You can, as a distiller, this is the best part. You can really determine which type of wood you like that reacts well with your particular grains. Mm -hmm. So David, for example, has Maryland grains and he wants to try to get Maryland wood. We like Pennsylvania grains and so we like specific wood. Right. That's because the wood sugars are reacting specifically with the flavors of the sugars in the wood. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of fun to see what kind of, we've gone through, we started aging in smaller barrels and that gave us the chance to see the effect of our whiskeys reacting to the different woods from all over the United States until we found the wood that we liked the best. Okay. And then we were able to get into bigger barrels that take longer to age. And that's the other thing. Time is also important in barrel aging. In a smaller barrel, you get a lot of wood sugars reacting with less whiskey. Sure. In a bigger barrel, it takes a lot longer. There's also the, the conversion of the esters. When you have different alcohols in the whiskey that give it that terroir that Kara mentioned, over time, those, those whiskeys, fusel oils, all those things, they react with the sugars at, at different times. Mm-hmm. So you get different flavors every single year. You get new and better flavors if you like that. You'll find, as Kara said, we young, there's a lot of people that have tastes for younger whiskeys. There's a lot of people that have tastes for older whiskeys. It doesn't seem to matter. The United States consumer is very sophisticated and likes what he likes. And that gives us, as craft distillers, a great chance to really make an impression on people who like to spread out their collection. Well, I think it's interesting because there is a resurgence in whiskey drinking. And I think a lot of it has to do with the rebirth of the industry. Um, But I want to piggyback on that. When it comes to the container and the char, how do you all go about finding what works for you? Yeah, so, you know, barrels used to be very commonplace. They were really the Tupperware of their time. (laughs) I love that. Um, And we love going down to our cooperage, um, which is a small family cooperage, because watching them make the barrels it is it is definitely a by hand process they are working in open flames they are building each barrel by hand stave by stave it very much mirrors what a pot distilled spirit looks like as it's being made the process mm-hmm. looks pretty similar when we were at wiggle when we were trying to figure out um the barrel treatments we wanted to land on ultimately we started out with working with four different cooperages for the first two or three years that we were around we had them produce barrels for us um, with different seasoning techniques so the wine drinkers i know nikki you know a lot about wine Mm -hmm. wine drinkers are often used to barrels that are seasoned for 24 36 months in the open air Um, bourbon barrels are typically kiln dried for a much shorter period of time we asked our coopers to give us the full gamut, to give mm-hmm. us barrels that were 
air seasoned, kiln dried over a variety of lengths of time. And then we also asked for um, a few different char levels, which is determined essentially by how long flame is held to the inside of a barrel, how charred it is. Mm-hmm. And so we put out over the course of a year um, batches made. Um, similarly, the difference being the kind of barrels we were putting out to understand whether our consumers could taste the difference between air-seasoned, kiln-dried barrels, and then whether they cared, whether they loved certain char levels more than others. So you really did like focus groups. We did a whole, we put out flasks of, and this is sort of typical on how we operate, right? Mm -hmm. We dive in deep on something and then try to get as much feedback as possible. And so we were able to land. I mean, you know what opinions are like. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's true. For real. you're You're opening a door. Right. But we, you know, we sort of, especially for the first number of years, it was so early in this craft space. And people really believed that spirits were still a black box. Even if you were an avid craft beer drinker or a very serious wine drinker, spirits, you had never been invited into the process. So we found when we put these kind of projects out and invited consumers in, they were ravenous for this kind of information because no one is talking to them about this. Sure. Getting to see how the sausage is made is sometimes a good thing. Yes. And so we were able to land on something that we loved and that we found consumers loved as well in terms of what our barrels looked like. Okay. And what about at 1.8? What's the process there? Right, so we do a lot of tasting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we our rye whiskey, our district made rye whiskey. Um, it's uh, we will always produce it. It um, we found a char three has been what works well for us, and we do a blending of thirty gallon barrels to fifty three gallon barrels. Okay, um, and that you know the smaller barrels give us a you know a liquid a higher liquid ratio to the barrel, so you get a, a nice mature flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a one two punch process there with that selection. And what about at Sagamore? Yeah, we're also using uh, you know New American oak barrels with a level three char. Uh, we found that at that char level, it really captured the flavor profile that we were looking for. And do you switch it because you have multiple offering? I mean, you all have multiple SKUs. So do you switch up that char, or do you always stay the same? For the most part, of a bulk of our our core items, the initial uh, rye that we're utilizing, we'll use that level three char. Um, one item in particular, let's just say our double oak right here, mm-hmm. um, we will take our rye that has been aging for four years, and then we'll introduce it into a second barrel. Okay. Now, this barrel is going to be a lot different than that first barrel where it was a standard New American Oak Barrel Level 3 char. Um, with this second barrel, it was uh, uniquely made by a cooper called Independent Stave, um, and this barrel was designed that they cut vertical wave-like grooves into each stave. Ooh, so that um, it, the liquid can sort of More surface there. area within the barrel. Uh-huh. Um, and then we introduced our four-year-old rye into this barrel. Now, with this barrel, we didn't go with a three-char on it. Um, if you go further in the charring process, you lose those grooves, so it's barely a toast on there mm-hmm. uh, just to release a lot of the flavors that we're looking for. Um, but you get more interaction between the whiskey and the wood, uh, so you're getting some additional oak flavoring that and comes in And how long there. is it in that one? Uh, so with our first iteration of our double oak, we did about five months. Um, the second go-around, uh, it was slightly over seven. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the, the longer the better. It releases and captures a lot of the flavors that we're looking for. Can you ever overdo it? Uh, yeah. 
Um, you know, like I think it's, of, it's the, like of, I think tri- of some of those Chardonnays, do you know what I mean, that are over-oaked and you like, you take a sip and it really just sort of blows your head off. Can you, can that happen with the spirit as well? It can. I mean, it, it's a lot of trial and error with our, uh, with our distillation teammates. I mean, mm-hmm. they're constantly making sure with quality control that, you know, as we've discussed earlier, you know, people have opinions and they have the, the, the flavor profiles that they're looking for. So, you know, oftentimes it's not necessarily what they may like, but it's what our consumers are, are going to like. So it's a lot of testing and, and making sure that we're going to provide a product that the consumers are going to appreciate. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, what I want to do is really talk about the, the history a little bit more of whiskey and how this uh, trail came together, the Rebellion Trail, and how all these people in studio here today are on it and how you can access it as well. So this is Nikki Nellis. I'm live in the Line Hotel. It's industry night. We'll be back in just a sec. everybody. Welcome back to Industry Night. This is Nikki Nellis. I'm live at the Gorgeous Line Hotel. You're tuning in to us on fullserviceradio.org. And we are having a really fabulous conversation about rye whiskey. Can I say rye whiskey or we just call it rye? Yes. Um, So if I mentioned earlier in the show, if you're living under a rock, then you haven't noticed that distilleries are popping up all over the eastern seaboard. And actually, nationally, it's a trend. But there's a reason for that. Um, and there, if you haven't been drinking whiskey or rye or bourbon or any of the brown liquors that are available to you, you're really missing out on some fabulous tastes that are popping up all along the area. So in studio with me today, I have Ellen Ho of Liberty Pole. I have Kara Webster of 1-8 Distilling. I have Brian Sheridan. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> of Sagamore. And I have Meredith Meyer Grelly, who um, is with Wiggle Whiskey of Pittsburgh. And I met everybody in studio originally because I was invited to do 
the Whiskey Rebellion Trail, uh, which starts in Pittsburgh, but everybody in studio is on it. And Meredith, you're really the force behind it. So I'd like to know what you thought you were doing. (laughs) Good question, Nikki. So um, we wanted to tell the first chapter of American whiskey, which is telling the first chapter of American history. And we also wanted to celebrate this burgeoning craft spirit um, story. So um, I actually blame Wayne Curtis, a spirits writer um, and author for a lot of this. I mentioned to him this idea several years ago, and he kept calling me every two months or so saying, when are you going to do it? Um, so we worked for a couple years to raise the money to get everybody together, and then it took us a year to launch it. But the goal is really um, to tell the American whiskey story. And right now as consumers, we know the part two. We know the bourbon, the Kentucky story, but we don't know the 200 years that's really started that mm-hmm. um, story. So the goal is to bring together this first year, we brought together 75 craft distilleries and cultural organizations across the Mid-Atlantic. So the Mid-Atlantic really owns this this chapter one story of American spirits in a way that no other part of the region, part of the country can. So we brought together um, the state of Pennsylvania from Philadelphia all the way to the western side of the state, Pittsburgh and its environs, down to Baltimore um, and D.C. Uh, and all the way to Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. And the goal here, the original thinking was to create a trail around the Whiskey Rebellion story, uh, which is an incredible piece of our history and which drew... George Washington and troops from Philadelphia across the state of Pennsylvania to uh, western Pennsylvania to the Pittsburgh area where he put down this whiskey rebellion and then he retired in the Maryland Virginia area at Mount Vernon where he became for a time the country's largest distiller of rye whiskey so we wanted to pull together everybody in that triangle that geography so that they could tell their stories but what was the Whiskey Rebellion. I mean, it's not taught in every history book, or it's not taught at length in every history book. Mm-hmm. Ellen, you seem to have a lot of knowledge about this, so I'm going to ping you on this. So one. what happened was, after the Revolutionary War ended, you have Alexander Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury, and he gets a call from the French, and they want their money back because the French Revolution was breaking out. He also, Robert Morris was a gentleman who had you know, individually funded a lot of the ammunition and things that they needed to win the Revolutionary War. So he had no money, no banks, no restaurants, no roads, no hotels. He had really nothing. So he decided, just like he had, the, the British had always done to the Scotch-Irish, whenever they needed to wage a war, they just borrow some of their whiskey over and over again to pay back the debts that they owed. So he tried it here again in the United States he easily waged it that on all 13 colonies, the, the people that were on the East Coast didn't have that part of a time paying because they were constantly distilling. But those of us in Wiggle and Liberty Pole land, and even in Maryland, they were struggling because they had to stay alive in the wilderness by growing their own crops because there were no grocery stores. So, you know, you've got all these native... Modern un- conveniences <laughs> were not available. <laughs> right, you got all the native animals, you know, wolves, bears. 
you know, people that could be attacked just walking down the street to church. Mm -hmm. So they had a really difficult life. And when this tax was waged, Alexander Hamilton will tell you that there wasn't any money, so how are you going to do it? You're going to ask them to give you some of their whiskey. But if you lived out in the out in the rural areas, not closer to the shore, then you only made whiskey once a year and you share, shared your still. So you couldn't just give him whiskey. That meant if you gave away whiskey, you had no salt, you had no fabric. So what they said was, the first couple years, nobody's gonna pay this. And they would even erect these liberty poles. It was their form of Twitter in which the, they would say, hey, no excise tax. We're free now, no excise tax. And so at one point, there was a gentleman who lived in Pittsburgh. His name was John Neville. He was actually had a, he was a far more wealthy than most of the farmers. He had a big still house. He was making all the whiskey that they used to pay the men of the Revolutionary War. There were also men that were trying to help settle Ohio. And so he would pay, that's how they would pay you for your service to the government. They would pay you with whiskey. So it was John Can Neville. Can you just imagine yeah. for a moment? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's how it worked. Today, so, I can't no, even. Sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. But again, you have to think of it this way, too, though. Whiskey was vitamin to them. Whiskey kept them from feeling pain. Whiskey helped them sleep. Mm -hmm. It was clean water in some areas. It was the only thing they could drink. Sure. So actually, it was very valuable. So, mm -hmm. all right, so now all of this is happening, and John Neville decides he's, none of the colonies were paying. Three years went by. None of the colonies were paying, and so Neville told Alexander Hamilton, I'll collect the tax. Okay, but I want to break in, because the tax was like a flat tax on everybody. It didn't take into consideration if you were Size. small or large, right? So Washington... It George was, Washington could afford it because he had the biggest distillery in the area. It was pretty much one run on your still. What, okay. You just owed the federal government one run. Well, if you were George Washington and you were running the still every single day. No big deal. If you were Miller in the Miller homestead, Oliver Miller, you ran it once a year. That's the only thing you had. Right. So now Alexander Hamilton will tell you if he were here, well, there was no other way to wage it. Mm -hmm. And that's the cool part about the Whiskey Rebellion Trail is that you're going to get to hear everybody's side and how they tried to compromise this problem that they had with how do you collect money that because it was a government that had a debt, how do you pay that debt back and how did they wage the tax? So it's actually really, if you go on the trail, thank you, Meredith, cheers, let's all raise our glasses. Yes, to Meredith. Cheers to Meredith. <laughs> but the bottom line is if you go on the trail, you learn how human beings compromised and what a great... Uh, I just think it's really fun. There's all kinds of stories to hear. It's it's just a really fun thing, mm -hmm. and it never really, it never really gets the due in history that it deserved, because it because of the Whiskey Rebellion, the federal government learned how to have a um, an army. They they learned that you have to put men in uniforms and give them food. They set up circuit courts so that they didn't have to go somewhere to pick you up if you broke the law. They could mm -hmm. take. They could just hey, you're under arrest for breaking a federal law. Here's a close court to try you in. Mm -hmm. There was all kinds of things. It was the first use of a federal pardon. The first time a president ever pardoned anybody was George Washington. Philip, he uh, pardoned Philip Wiggle. And so, like, that was also amazing. Here's a new young government, and these are new laws that we're trying to do. 
Mm-hmm. So I thought it was, I think it's a really cool history. And when did the tax end? 1803. <laughs> After Jefferson, the rebellion? Jefferson campaigned on the repeal of the whiskey tax, in yep. fact. It was, mm-hmm. yeah. that, it was part of what drove his popularity was this notion of getting rid of this terrible booze tax. And that's how it got obliterated? Came back. Uh-huh. Came back. Abraham Lincoln brought it back to pay for the Civil War. Of course, interesting. But um, we uh, we were uh, without it for a little bit. And so, with both Wiggle and Liberty Pole, does I mean both of your names suggest history? So, how did it work with Wiggle when you were putting your product together initially? Yeah, the naming of the designs. Yes. Yeah. So we wanted to do something that evoked the heritage, but that was fun and inclusive, mm-hmm. um, and that you didn't have to know what was going on to get involved with. So we fell in love with the, the gentleman, Philip Wiggle, who was a German immigrant in the 1790s in Pittsburgh and distiller. He would have called himself Weigel, because he was German. Um, but he punched the federal tax collector that came to town. And Pittsburgh, we're still a simple place. We're a simple place there. This punch gets everybody excited. And we fell in love with Wiggle because he's described in some historical documents as not particularly smart or strategic. He just is a passionate guy that got in over his head. And as we were starting the distillery, that is exactly how we <laughs> felt. So as we were reading these documents, we, you know, we just related to him. And um, we felt like whiskey oftentimes takes itself very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to inject a little fun into it and storytelling. And so Wiggle seemed like a nice way to do that. And then what about with Liberty Pole? I mean, clearly we now know where you got the name. Our, you see um, Spirited Jane, we call her. Jane Miller is on our, is on our logo. Mm-hmm. She was another Philip Weigel type person. Her son was one of the first to be killed in one of the skirmishes. Okay. And it's Jim and I and our two sons. And when you actually delve into the history of the Whiskey Rebellion and you actually think somebody lost a child over tax... We fell in love with her, and so she became, she's, she's a bit of our logo as well. And what about at Sagamore? Um, so you look at the Sagamore name. Um, mm-hmm. We actually got the Sagamore name from Sagamore Farm, which is located northwest of downtown Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, that farm was originally owned by the Vanderbilt family. Um, Alfred, so just a, just a little bit of money. Yeah, just a little bit of <laughs> just money. Just a little bit of money. Um, <laughs> the, the funny story about it is uh, Alfred Vanderbilt, um, you know, while he was away at school, uh, at Yale, spent more time at the horse track than he did in the classroom. Sounds like my father. Um, and obviously, <laughs> he has a, a very supportive mother because on his 21st birthday, uh, really decided to support his uh, his habit at the track and decided bought him a to horse. Per- oh, well, <laughs> one step better, bought him a bought, bought him a, a plot of land and bought him a, a thoroughbred racehorse farm. Wow! Oh, wow! Um, <laughs> so uh, okay, Alfred. Uh, my was, dad did not fare as well, but go ahead. <laughs> Uh, Alfred was uh, very integral in growing uh, horse racing within the state of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Um, One of his primary horses from that farm was Native Dancer. uh, Fell one race short of the Triple Crown, Mm -hmm. but was the first uh, animal, you can say, that was featured on the cover of uh, Time Magazine. Um, So that farm uh, was eventually purchased by the Plank family. Um, and we honor that name in the history of the farm because uh, an integral part of our story is the water that we're utilizing. Um, 
much like you would find in Bourbon County in Kentucky, that, that limestone spring water that uh, stretches throughout Pennsylvania into the likes of Western Maryland and parts as well mm-hmm. uh, is very important in, in proofing down and, and the utilization and distillation of, of rye whiskey that we're, we're focusing on. So, but would, if, for people who haven't been out to the distillery yet, because it is relatively new, yes. right? How long have you been open? Uh, so we opened in February of 2017. Right. So, but you're right on the water in Baltimore. Yes. You're distilling there. I mean, it's it's a massive property um, with a fabulous restaurant, I might add. Next. Thank beautiful. you. Beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. Bravo, it's beautiful. Um, but actually, yeah. it's sort of, I mean, here we've been talking about, you know, your product and what you're doing and how, you know, we all sort of, except for you, Sagamore, bootstrapped, you know, to get the product, no judgment, but, you know, get the, the, get the product out there. And one of the interesting things is for all of you, you're all event spaces. Yeah. Everybody. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how that came into play when we're talking about creating an artisan product. So you want to start, Kara, you want to talk about it 1-8? Was it always part of the process? Oh, about whether or not, why you have event space. What, why and, uh, we the, have event space. Well, because the distillery is more than just a distillery. All of right. yours. Every distillery has something else going on. It is an event space. It is a restaurant. It is, it is a way to bring people in which wasn't always the case with distilleries or bur- I mean I have the answer but I feel like it's an important question cuz you all have it you all have ways of bringing people in to not just try your product and buy your product but to do other things in the space entertainment etc yeah so that's a really fun thing for some distilleries to talk about not for others cuz depending on where you open up your distillery you may be limited in what you can do in your space right. so but not here but uh, we we kind of like to say under our breath that DC is like the wild west we can open up a cocktail bar which you will find in our tasting room it's a full cocktail bar on the weekends we can pour tastings and give tours um, and you don't always find that in every state um, but we are also an event space and um, we've just started doing weddings which mm-hmm. is really exciting um, it's you know it's a wonderful way for f- people to experience uh, the space when it's quiet and no one's there and they're celebrating a special moment um, in front of. But the was stills. it always part of the business plan? Absolutely. I mean, we really wanted to hone in on you know specific events that would you know infuse the community with a lot a sense of collaboration and and in DC specifically there are so many distilleries in our neighborhood that we. We have a lot going on. Um, we wanted to create a sense of education, so we like to host, you know, botanical workshops and whiskey 101s to mm-hmm. bring people into the fold and really understand their own palates. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times we get, you know, ask like requests for recommendations, and what we're looking for is to help you identify your own palate um, so that you can really become an empowered whiskey drinker. Meredith, what about for you? Because you have multiple properties. Yeah, we have five Wiggle locations. Then we also have a sister cider company with two locations. And I would say this is one of the biggest differences between craft producers and uh, large producers. Because Mm -hmm. the smart economic thing to do if you're a large producer is to get land as cheaply as possible out in 
somewhere where right. real estate is not very expensive, right? And produce as tight a portfolio as possible and distribute as widely as possible. Mm-hmm. And when we started the distillery, we looked at that game and said, we're never going to compete in that game. We need to change the game. And part of that was to liberalize the laws so that we could bring people to us, people who would value education, mm-hmm. who would value quality and innovation. And so to keep them engaged, we have to keep giving them reasons to visit us. And that's through product innovation. That's through community engagement. And for us... And programming. And programming, right? absolutely. Programming. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what about at Liberty Pole? Liberty Pole's smaller. So, um, and we also came later to the game than you guys. And we followed in these footsteps of these great crafters. So I would like to say that I think the secret to the success of Liberty Pole is the quality of the whiskey because we had to. We had to be good to compete. And so what we get are the sophisticated whiskey drinker who loves the art, the art of the farming, the art of the barrel making, the art of what comes out of that bottle when they taste it. And I would say a lot of our customers are um, thrilling to us because when they when they join us to taste the whiskey, we're celebrating not only the tradition, but pride of place, where we're located and what we're able to produce in our location. And we just hope that as we grow older, we're getting better. Getting better. And what about at the Sagamore? Because like we said, it's a, it's a monstrous place and it's beautiful and you're producing a lot of spirits as well. How did you guys, what was the initial plan in rolling it out? Um, you look at our space, and, and obviously I think each of us here, um, we're telling our story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and our, each of our distilleries is, is our opportunity to showcase what we're doing and tell our story. Um, you know, for each of us, you're going to have your, your, your educated whiskey drinkers that are, that are going to come and check you out and generate their opinion. But I think... With the ability to activate each of our own spaces, it's an opportunity to bring in customers uh, that may not necessarily make the trip to your distillery, mm-hmm. whether they're coming for a work happy hour or mm-hmm. they're there for um, whether it's doing yoga on our uh, on our courtyard area. But you're capturing a new audience, and right. it's that consumer that may not necessarily be a whiskey drinker, but they get the opportunity to visit the distillery, hear our story, uh, try our spirits, and mm-hmm. they could come away with a different opinion. And that's a new, you know, that's a new supporter that we've captured there. So, you know, we're very fortunate. We have a great team that uh, that works on our event side. And then we have, you know, a great team working at the distillery to provide a, you know, world-class experience. Well, and pro tip for anybody going out to visit the Sagamore, you can hop on a ferry which will take you to Fells Point, Mm -hmm. which I highly recommend (laughs) because it's a fabulous, it's beautiful. It's a fabulous way to uh, do it. It's amazing. So Meredith, when you were putting together the trail, how did you get in touch with everybody? How did you get everybody on board? There's a ton of collateral. There's an Instagram feed. How did you put all that together. Yeah, so I guess three or four years ago now, we started working on just a collective list of potential sites. So we started just by asking folks who were interested in bringing this project to life to add to a spreadsheet every site they thought in the mid-Atlantic that might be a good fit for this trail. And we started with the idea of, we don't know if we have an, the the big doubt at the time was the mid-Atlantic doesn't have enough they don't have enough sites to warrant a trail. Well, you said how many? 75? We have 75, but when I mean, we started this list... I didn't even think there were 25. We had, 
We had more than 300 identified. Wow. Our contract with our the web platform that we use limited us to 75 this first year. And so we decided to just focus on distilleries in cultural institutions. And when I say cultural institutions, those are generally museums um, in each of the regions. So um, in this region, it's Mount Vernon, Smithsonian. In uh, Philadelphia, it's the Museum of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, in Pittsburgh, it's the Heinz History Center. So really fantastic institutions that have um, exhibits on whiskey or the Whiskey Rebellion or programming related to it. And then we reached out to all of these distillers and we were floored by the response. Pretty much everyone signed on. And so we were ready to roll. That's really interesting. I mean, so to me, like, I understand some of it yeah. while everybody would sign on. But like Sagamore, did Sagamore hear about it and think, yeah, this makes total sense to us? Uh, for me personally, I, I can't really speak to that. But I mean, I just think the concept, you know, the idea of it, you know, it's an opportunity for us in the Mid-Atlantic to tell mm -hmm. our story, you know, where most people, when they think of whiskey in the U.S., they immediately think of Kentucky, but... There's so much more, and you have a much more educated consumer now, nowadays mm -hmm. that having the ability to showcase our story and where we came from within our region, I, I just think it's fantastic. And well, if okay. I could build on what Brian said, because Rachel Fontana, who's been a part of the advisory board for this project at Sagamore, she was a very early and very avid adopter because she is doing what we're all trying to do and build, rebuild a category mm -hmm. of spirits, rye whiskey from Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia. And so this is one more way that we are all trying to build this category back up and these stories, um, return them to the American imagination. So how does somebody utilize the trail? Yeah, so you can go to um, whiskeyrebelliontrail.com and you can do the whole trail that spans the whole Mid-Atlantic. You can buy a pass that gives you a year to hit as many sites as you want, as many but distilleries. But there's no, like, Uber that's going to take you on the no, whole No, you got to be an adventurer to do real, that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Or you can choose a region-specific passport. So since we are in D.C., I will reveal that the Ivy City Passport has been the best-selling passport no in kidding. the trail. I love that. <laughs> no shock. Though. I mean, so, yeah, Ivy City is pretty fabulous. It's amazing, and this the passport um, gets you to some of the country's best craft distilleries, all within walking distance. Is the to each passport other. an app, or is the passport like is it physical? It's not. It is. You go online. You can download it to your phone. You do not have to download an app to use it, and then okay. you redeem it at each site. It is very, very easy to use. And what are you redeeming? You're redeeming uh, a different experience at each site. So mm -hmm. some sites offer cocktails, some tasting flights, some tours. Uh, it really depends on the distillery and it's very flexible. Mm -hmm. You have time to use it and you can uh, do it in whatever order you like. That's amazing. So how does 1-8 participate? Yeah, so we offer uh, a tour and tasting um, and you can also redeem for a cocktail or a flight as well. Amazing. And what about at Sagamore? Do you know what your offer is? I believe at Sagamore... They have both a tour and a flight option. Okay. Yes, that sounds and, about right. Yes, and at Liberty Pole. Liberty Pole has a flight option, but if you say you're on the trail, we'll give you a tour for free. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, do do most of you charge for tours? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because yes. we're serving alcohol with our tours, right? Okay. Everybody here. And you can't give away that much alcohol. So, And how long are the tours? 
usually. Ours takes an hour and a half. But I think most are somewhere between 40 minutes and an hour. Just yeah, so people are prepared, right. you know, because I, I'm sure if you've never been on a tour before, you think, I mean, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to look at a still, I'm going to turn around, I'm going to walk out. But there's real history and education at each distillery, and you need a little more time. It's not just drinking. And at these distilleries, you're likely talking to a producer, an owner, or someone who is significantly invested in the production. Like your father. Yes. Your father is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. If you go out to the Wiggle Distillery in Pittsburgh, hopefully you get Meredith's dad <laughs> because he is incredibly passionate yes. and really tells an amazing, amazing story. Well, I can't believe it, but we are all wrapped up here. An hour goes by very, very quickly. If we could just go to everybody quickly, say your name, where you're from, and how people can find you, I would really appreciate it. Meredith, I'm going to let you go last. Let's start with you, Ellen. Ellen Huff, Liberty Pole Spirits, proudly from Washington, Pennsylvania. Excellent. Uh, Brian Sheridan from Sagamore Spirit, located in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Kara Webster from 1-8 Distilling in Washington, D.C., Meredith Meyer Grelly from Wiggle Whiskey. You can see us on Instagram at Wiggle Whiskey with one G uh, or visit our website, wigglewhiskey.com. Also, Wiggle with one G. And where can we find uh, the passports? Passports are available at whiskeyrebelliontrail.com. Okay, great. So I want to thank you all for joining me in studio today. We tasted some delicious rye whiskeys, and we got such an education. And if you want to learn more, obviously, uh, you can go to that website to find out more about the Whiskey Rebellion and the history of whiskey in this country, because it, what we, we just scratched the surface mm-hmm. in studio today, and it really is fascinating and what i what i'd love to get into maybe at a later date is to talk about what prohibition really did yeah. um as a business deflator for uh, so many people in this country and ha- even today how we still have not brought back these uh businesses um so another conversation for another day i want to thank you all for joining me in studio today this is nikki nellis industry night at the line hotel you can tune in anytime on full radio.org of course you can find me online at nikki nellis n-y-c-c-i n-e-l-l-i-s every food and wine event you want to know about is on the list are you on it.com and you can hear me sunday live at 11 on 1500 have a delicious week Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.